You're listening to Do What You Want Radio, a podcast series for creative entrepreneurs, freelancers, and those ready to learn how to do what they want. I'm your host, Jordan Heffler. All right, everybody, welcome back to Do What You Want Radio. I'm sitting here with Ann Milnick, a chef and owner of Red Stick Spice Company here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Hey there. Hey, I'm so excited to finally have you, especially because your email signature says Spice Girl. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Thank you. So tell everyone a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you got started. Absolutely. So I own Red Stick Spice Company here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's a little small gourmet grocery store, essentially. We sell spices, spice blends, olive oils, balsamics, specialty salts, um, locally crafted uh, food products, and We also hand blend all our own teas, and we teach cooking classes. So everything you would expect from um, any ideas to come up with great home-cooked meals, that's what you'll find in in my store. I got started six and a half years ago. I've owned the store for six and a half years. I was actually a customer of the store. I knew the previous owners, and I was a customer, and I was freshly out of culinary school. I went to culinary school later in life when I was 40. I went to culinary school, and I got out and um, and was doing a little bit of catering, but was sort of unsure of what I wanted to do. It became pretty evident to me early on that I wasn't going to work the line in a restaurant, mm-hmm. and I and I did not want to own a restaurant. So um, I was looking for a job, and it was the the day I I went and dropped my resume off at um, a business in town to teach, of all things, and I needed some ingredients, and I swung by the store and was picking up some spices, and the owners were there, and they um, mentioned that they were ready to retire back to California, and did I want to buy their shop, and what a casual conversation. <laughs> yeah. So buying the shop was um, – it keeps me around what I love, but it isn't the same grind as working in a restaurant, although I don't ever want to characterize it as being easy. Um, it's just different, mm-hmm. and it did work well for my family at the time. My children were still in middle school and high school at the time. And so it worked really well for me. And then six and a half years later, we've, you know, added a second location. We have a robust online business. We've expanded into mid-city Baton Rouge, which is, I think, one couple of the hottest zip codes in, mm-hmm. in Baton Rouge, um, with plans to grow even more coming up this summer. So I never realized that you bought it from previous owners. Yes. What is that process like? taking on something someone else's baby okay that's fascinating because it was essentially a real estate deal like Mm -hmm. you go to a closing and the person who sold it who handled the transaction was a realtor so that was interesting to me you know and you you certainly consult with your lawyer and and you negotiate um and then it just passes hands like on december 16th We signed papers, and on December 17th of that year, I walked in the store, and the previous owners weren't there, and and it was mine. It's mine. (laughs) And we were able to do it that quickly and that seamlessly thanks to technology. We simply got the Square system Mm -hmm. on an iPad, and we were able to immediately start checking folks out. So uh, it it was really what I thought was going to be sort of like laborious and complicated was actually quite easy and so I just owned the store and I immediately started to think about the way they positioned the store and what worked and what didn't work and it and it came very quickly so a couple of the local publications wrote about the new ownership and did stories on me and curious folks um, came by to see what was going on they some were previous customers and some were just curious mm-hmm. or maybe knew me and they were curious and they started to come in. And the previous owners were great business people, but they didn't know a lot about food. And it was pro- positioned very much as a high-end specialty store that was where you found like rare things. Like a boutique. Yeah. And 
the previous owner made a comment at one point, and I still really don't know what she meant by this, but she called it the Apple Store for Spices. And I was like, that's really interesting, you know, that that sort of, I, I don't know if she meant it to be like a niche or or what she meant, but you know, I was play. We were playing around with uh, who we were and what we wanted to do, and a woman came in to shop, and I greeted her and I asked her if I could help her, and she said, "Yeah, I'm just. I was just curious. I read about you, and I was just curious about it." And she was like, "I'm not a fancy cook," and she whispered, "I still make red beans and rice on Mondays." And I thought, it's exactly what you need. <laughs> Why are we whispering? <laughs> and it struck me at that point that we were positioned very much as um, almost elitist when it came to cooking. And that was when the moment when we pivoted and we the brand change was immediate. First of all, that's not me. Mm-hmm. Um, no one needs to whisper about You're making. You're very approachable from yeah. the few conversations I've had with you. Yeah. And while I'm a chef and there's a lot of like illusions about chef and that the lighting is good and every meal is like a cooked episode on Netflix, mm-hmm. um, I am at my core just a girl from South Louisiana who loves home cooking and just, you know, I'm most alive when my family's gathered around the table. And I would never whisper about making red beans and rice on Mondays. And so my husband, I'm so, so lucky to have a husband who it works in the design field. Mm-hmm. His company um, immediately re- rebranded the store. And so the look and feel of our brand, whether it's from the physical store displays that we have to the logo to all the, you know, everything we use to brand the store has a very, what I would call, the feel of a general store it is it's it's got that um almost like vintage but it's it's very homey in your store yes it's very homey and even down to like the fonts you use and such like I feel like it's very recognizable but it's I'm not afraid to go in there and I was telling Anne before we started the podcast I do not cook I am not a good cook my mom is basically Martha Stewart my boyfriend cooks a lot. My brother is like a grill master. I have no desire to cook. I'm not good at it. I don't enjoy it. I like to eat though. But that being said, I normally don't. Typically, I don't typically go into cooking type stores because I don't feel at home. I feel out of place. I feel um, intimidated. And there's nothing about Red Stick Spice that intimidates me um, going in there. I feel like there's lots of different products for every level of what you might do. Like I've bought like. Um, flavored olive oils and such just to, you know, saute my chicken with, which is about the level of cooking knowledge I have, you know, so there's something for everybody there. And I don't feel like it's elitist at all. So whatever you did for rebranding has worked. Why well, I, I appreciate that. And I credit my staff for being super approachable. We are just a group of folks who love food and love home cooking. And the way I train staff on um, working with customers, I was like, Every customer walks in with a problem, Mm -hmm. whether it's they need a gift or they need chicken to taste better or this recipe has stumped them. And as long as we are there for them to help solve whatever that problem is, you know, and and really with a good first couple of questions, we can really make their world a lot smaller Mm -hmm. because the store is a little overwhelming when you walk in. There's a lot. lot. There's a lot to choose (laughs) from. But it's a small store at the same time, so you do feel like it's, you can conquer it. Right, right. But I want to, I want to go back to something you said um, because we hear this a lot and it's just a thought error. I'm not a good cook. That's just a false sentence in your brain. Now, I can I can work wonders with the sentence, I'm not a good cook. I don't want to cook is a little different, but <laughs> I can't cook, I can work with. Yeah. Because trust me, you can cook. Well, like, I know, I can't ever tell with chefs how they feel about this, but I was doing Blue Apron for about a year, Um and I keep trying to cancel, and they won't let me cancel. I don't know what the problem is. <laughs> They're so is. good at it. They literally will not let me cancel. I like that business model. <laughs> uh, but that was a really, I mean, it was good for someone like me who, like, literally went from, like, toast and jam mm-hmm. <laughs> to making, like, 
Korean barbecue, like, tacos and all this crazy stuff. And it was great because what they would send me would be, like, pre-portioned. It takes the math out of it. It takes, like, the shopping. And I just get overwhelmed with recipe lists because if I go to the store and I have all these things on my list I need and I don't know where they are or I don't know what they are like, or where they, where they are in the store, I just won't buy them. And then I'm like, I'm just not going to cook it. And then I just end up at Izzo's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Blue Apron really did help me get more acquainted with what I could do. And um, just some of the spice blends and stuff that you'll have in your store, I'm like, oh, I'm familiar with that now because exactly. it was sent to me. And so I'm a little exactly. bit further in there. Also, I'm at that age. I'm 26. Like, I can't, one, afford to eat out every meal. But right. also, I probably need to start figuring out <laughs> simple things to cook for myself and future family or whatever because I'm just at that point where, absolutely, you know, sauteed chicken can only get you so far. Right. <laughs> so I'm actually a fan of Blue Apron because what we find is when folks have received it, what it's done is at least gotten them from that mentality of I can't cook mm-hmm. to I did something. And a lot of times that opens, that helps open them up to greater possibilities. And that's where I come in. So coming in to take a cooking class Mm -hmm. or recreating that Korean barbecue on your own with products from my store, that's where we can come in and we can totally show you how to open that up. Another thing Blue Apron does that I think is really important is it controls food waste. Right, because they only send you what you need. Exactly. So we are throwing away an inordinate amount of food in this country. And so I think Blue Apron is a great way, looking at how Blue Apron does it and trying to duplicate that model in your shopping, I think is really important. And that's something we do in our store. We sell by weight. Mm -hmm. So you come in and you buy as much or as little as you need. So let's say that Korean barbecue, you liked it, but you don't, it's not going to be your weekly mm-hmm. go-to. You don't need a, a big box store size container of that spice. Right. You need an ounce because you might make that three times in the next three and a half months. So you come in and you just buy that ounce from us because that spice blend's going to expire in about eight months. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a jar of nutmeg or any other spice in your cabinet that's been there for years and years, then you've bought too much, and that spice isn't going to be nearly as pungent as it could have been mm-hmm. had you bought just the amount you needed. If you're making a spice cake that you only make at Thanksgiving for your family once a year, you don't need to have a jar of that spice blend. Or you, you forget you have it, and it comes time next year, you buy it again. Exactly. <laughs> so you have, like, five things of, yeah. like, nutmeg in your ca- um, cabinet. Right. Yeah. So we do that all the time. A lot of times folks want to try a recipe, and they're unsure, and it calls for several spices that they don't have. We will measure for your exact recipe, literally a half teaspoon of that, a teaspoon of that. That's good to know. um, So that you only take home exactly what you need, because there's no reason to have a jar of that in your cabinet if you're unsure if you're going to use that again. And that's sort of the model that Blue Apron is putting in place. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing we talk about. Um, And I think it's a great way to approach cooking and... It's those little incremental steps that turn you from I can't cook to someone who cooks several nights a week. Right. Well, in the the health aspect, too, like I, I had done Whole30 a couple of times and just starting to read nutrition facts and like, what is in my food and what am I getting when I go out to eat? And so kind of learning how to cook different things has really helped me understand more about like what exactly is in my food. And so going to shop at like somewhere like your shop, um, it's just the the bear it's like the actual thing <laughs> there's no right. like strange things you never heard of it's like these are spices from this place or this is you know you have all the the leafy teas and everything and it's, right it's so great to see it like in its raw form right like just there for right. you to just buy by however much you need yeah i think wellness and healthy those are really like loaded words that have come to have super complicated meanings And I don't know that anyone really knows what they mean anymore. And there's so much spin, there's so much chatter in the world of I'm going to eat healthy or I'm going to embrace wellness. And then you end up um, really overcomplicating the process of trying to break down all this minutiae in your food and 
everything that I am reading and studying about the subject, because I want to be super mindful about how I talk to folks about this, is that just cooking at home from whole ingredients is a great first step to answering all those questions. You know, you can you can browse through stores and look for a V on foods, you know, and then you're vegan and then social media tells you you're healthy, but there are some really garbage foods out there mm-hmm. that are vegan. And that and then you can just take that example and apply that to almost every other eating right. style. It's there's just so much confusion and chatter and just getting super simple and just cooking at home from whole ingredients is a great first step of breaking through all of that well going back to what you were talking about when you came out of culinary school and you just bought the shop did you already have I mean as a chef I'm assuming you had an interest in spices and things like that but did you have knowledge about like all these you have so many spices in your shop like did you have knowledge about all these things and where they come from and the blends and and all that, or did, is, has it been a learning process since you bought the store? Like a huge learning process. It's interesting you asked this because I was talking recently about teachers and teaching and who our teachers were and, and how we learned. My All the females in my family, with the exception of me, are educators, which is interesting because I now teach cooking classes. Right, so you're right, right. right in there. Right, um, but I would say... You know, definitely some. I'm a South Louisiana girl. I could teach gumbo, jambalaya, you know, all those things with my eyes closed. I went to the John Foles Culinary Institute at Nichols mm-hmm. and it has a very strong um, South Louisiana focus. And definitely going to culinary school was a huge learning curve. But buying the shop, it's interesting because today, six and a half years later, if you asked me what would be the one dish I would teach a novice cook, let's say I came over and I wanted to teach you one thing, and you would think I would teach you an etouffee or jambalaya, but what I would teach you would be a curry. And that's fascinating to me that to say that, but a curry is one of the most is a very simple cooking process that ends up with one of the most complex flavor combinations and no curry that I've ever made has been the same as the one before Mm -hmm. Um, curries are and then when you start to then so curries a lot of times for folks they come in and it's mysterious and it's intimidating but when you start to look at that cooking process it looks a whole lot like the way a shrimp creole comes together Mm -hmm. in South Louisiana in terms of layering those flavors and in terms of knowing when to add what and a curry is um, such a interesting combination of flavors that were so foreign to me. Um, and, and it was interesting to me how much a curry became a comfort food mm-hmm. in our family um, when a lot of times it's, there's so much mysticism and, and it seems so exotic. Mm-hmm. But it became very much like sort of a, a go-to weeknight staple and comfort food so for sure that learning curve even though you know as a trained chef I I did know a lot about food coming in I definitely realized I would very quickly that this shop I became its student very very quick quickly and um, having learned to wrap my brain around all these spices and how they get combined in different parts of the world definitely a huge learning curve for me so what is like the business side of that look like as far as like getting the spices and having like dealing with um, suppliers and and packaging them and how does that work? Like how do you get the spices? So spices um, are grown in various parts of the world, and what's happening is there's been a big shift of turkey becoming a huge base for a lot of spices being produced out of turkey now. Mm-hmm. So um, I am very, very mindful of where my spices come from, and I realized quickly that I needed to find a supplier that was super transparent and I could trust. And so I work with a co-op out of the Midwest who helps me um, understand where the spices come from and why they source what they do. So that all, a lot of that turns into the question of, are they all organic? And they are not. Many of them are, but sometimes fair is more important 
than organic mm-hmm. when you start looking at those parts of the world where mm-hmm. these spices are being produced. So we are very, I'm very much honed in on those farming practices, who's working on those farms, and how that all gets to market. Um, and that's why a lot of the spices, when you come in, there's occasionally sticker shock with some of the spices, but there we also make sure that that leads to a really important teachable moment with customers and a robust conversation about why we do what we do and how we source what we do because it's really important to me that those sourcing those farming practices are fair Mm -hmm. um so in in terms of some specific spices for example onion and garlic um, i source only from california because it's important to me there was a um a big shipment of Chinese onion and garlic that came into the United States many years ago. And it almost put the California onion and garlic farmers out of business. So um, it's really important that folks understand what these big uh, commodity Mm -hmm. sort of movements do to the small farmers. I think a lot of us know that story on a really local scale. Um, and maybe don't realize what might be going on in other parts of our country or even other parts of the world. But I think it's super important that we understand what what it means when you can buy something really cheap, what that backstory is, mm-hmm. what that might have done to someone else. Um, in terms of sourcing products locally, I, I would I get that question all the time. Do you make all these spices? Do you source them locally? There's nowhere to buy cinnamon other than really Sri Lanka, so <laughs> you know I couldn't source that here. But when it's when it's available, I absolutely do. Um, so a handful of things do come from us locally, and we're having better luck doing that in terms of blending teas mm-hmm. than spices. But we do everything possible to get things as close as possible. But understand, supporting a small farmer in Chile or Turkey. It is important too. Mm-hmm. Um, it, local is absolutely important, but it's also to remember that it's local somewhere, um, and it's important to uh, embrace that all over the world. So, before you had gone to culinary school and such, had you owned other b- businesses previously? Like, was this like a whole new thing buying the shop to you, or had you had your own business before? So, I worked in I went to LSU and I worked in marketing afterwards and did copywriting and um, worked a little bit with media buying, Um, met my husband, got married, had kids, and I was a stay-at-home mom, soccer mom, drove carpool, all those things, and uh, was doing some copywriting at home, a little bit of freelance writing. I had always wanted to go to culinary school since I was little. I remember watching um, Julia Child and the Galloping Gourmet on public television when I was little, and I also watched Saturday Night Live make fun of them. (laughs) And so even though I didn't know this, like, I knew enough to know that if someone was making fun of these chefs, there was something to it. You know, a lot of, you know, you'll hear that once Saturday Night Live makes fun of you, you're like, you've made it, you've arrived. Um, And I didn't literally know that then, but I knew enough to go, you know, Something's up with it. It must be a big deal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I I always loved cooking. I remember the first thing I cooked was a Betty Crocker cake mix. I could do it. I couldn't read. I remember this, but I could – the pictures told me what to do. And I made the cake mix, and I saw how happy it made people, and it was just like bingo. And it wasn't really a conversation when I finished high school about going to culinary school. I just knew that wasn't on my parents' radar, that that wasn't a real job or a real career or a real degree. And um, but never forgot about it. And I mentioned it when I was about to turn 40 to my husband that I'd always wanted to go to culinary school. And he said, that sounds like a good idea. And he didn't realize I was going to go to the next day and enroll. And then I drove three day, three, uh, three years down the bayou. That's what I was going to ask. Like, did you have to move over there? No. How did that work with your family? And so um, because I had so many of my prerequisites taken care of, I mainly was focused on the culinary part in order Mm -hmm. to earn. And John Foles Culinary Institute offers a four year bachelor of science. And I like to be their cheerleader, cheerleader. And I like to talk about it because that was important to Chef Foles, that it be a Bachelor of Science and not a Bachelor of Art. And 
it is something that I think really serves a lot of the students because the truth is, is that I think it's 90% of restaurants fail and many, many chefs are unable to live a lifelong career in the industry because it is so physically challenging mm-hmm. on them. And so setting these students up with this Bachelor of Science, I think is super important. I have many, many classmates that I graduated with who are, one guy's in IT, several of them are teachers, many of them went back and got their master's in either business mm-hmm. or um, nutrition. So um, I, I like to cheerlead them because they're doing something a little different in this country for, for culinary students than a lot of other schools. But no, I drove. I was able to work it out because I had so few prerequisites to take care of. Culinary, you know, most semesters was three, maybe four days a week. So my mm-hmm. commute wasn't terrible. Um, and so, yeah, I just worked that schedule so that I could drop my kids at school go to school, come back, you know, oftentimes my husband or a babysitter would pick them up. Um, it always looked a little bit different, but in three years I was, I was done. The joke in that I tell is my children were in first and third grade. So I'd check their homework and give them, of course they couldn't drive. So I'd give them a, dr- a ride to school and I'd give them money for lunch and I would leave those little ones drive to Nichols and so I was a 40 year old among 18 year olds Mm -hmm. and I'd drive to Nichols and I would they often asked me for a ride and borrowed money from me and asked (laughs) me to read their English paper so I was doing the same thing. So you're a mom no matter where you go. (laughs) Right right but um, definitely three of the happiest years of my life um, uh, going there and um, learning um, super like intensive and Weird and, you know, all those things, but absolutely um, one of the best decisions I've ever made. One of my really good friends did the culinary program there for a little bit and then ended up switching to business. But it's funny because the time you said you were there, she may have actually been Oh, I'd love to find out who that was. Yeah, Yeah. her name would be Erin Fontenot. Now she's married. But just funny because I didn't know anything about Nichols ever, Mm -hmm. but she was like my best friend in high school, and she went to school there. So we'd go visit, and I was always like, there's no easy way to get to the school. (laughs) Like, you literally are like – along a bayou no but there's like three or four different ways to do it but they're all kind of still just the crazy like i you know that term down the bayou you're driving down the bayou is like this that's not an exaggeration (laughs) no it's like this you know i was like oh that's so romantic i was like no for for real you drive down the bayou like 40 miles an hour yeah through like neighborhoods. (laughs) let's talk about sugarcane season because you will get behind a sugarcane truck Mm -hmm. and you're going to be late to class (laughs) Yeah, no, I remember that was always the joke. We'd go visit her, and like my GPS would take me a different way every time. And we're like, we still don't know how we get here, but we're here somewhere, somehow, every time. Right. And there was a place in Thibodeau called Cajun Potato that we mm-hmm. were obsessed with because they had a red beans and rice potato. Yeah. Pretty sure it's like a heart attack. Yeah. But it was amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's really interesting to hear about, especially because you did it later in life and you had your family set up and everything. But mm-hmm. that's awesome that they were very supportive of you to do that. Yeah. And obviously, it's working out for you now yeah. with what you're currently doing. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the cooking classes. So the shop, did it originally have cooking classes as part of its business model, or is that something that you added to when you purchased it? No, the the I added it after I purchased it. It became the immediate number one question. Mm-hmm. Are you going to – can you teach cooking classes? Are you going to teach cooking classes? And we did cooking demos in my first location. It was um, rough. It was tight, you know, um, folding chairs, shoving store displays out of the way, and we, but we filled them. And so we were like, this has to be a thing when we move locations. So when we moved to Mid-City, we built in a room where we're hosting cooking classes. And it's beautiful. And, yeah, and it's, and it's so much fun. Again, we're using portable induction burners. Everything's on wheels, so we can move it around depending on what type of class it's going to be. And we sell out most all of the classes. It's definitely something folks are looking for. I've found that giving an experience as a gift versus, say, another candle or another item, mm-hmm. especially when folks get to a certain stage in life, they no longer want things. And I'm and I'm also find that with younger folks. Um, with I watch my kids uh, uh, shop at Goodwill, and you know, not wanting to have you know more things in their life. And uh, that ex- that giving an experience or experiential learning for corporate groups is huge. And so we've we've really come a long way in the way we taught classes in the beginning to where we are now. 
um, how we've progressed. And the plan is to build in, we'll be under construction in the summer um, and building in a larger, more permanent cooking class space in the, we just expanded into the space next door to us. Oh, in the mid, on the Jefferson location? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's awesome because yeah. that's already a very pretty, like it's pretty. Yeah. Like it's, it's useful, but I mean, I've had to photograph different things there and it's like, I appreciate it as a photographer. Like, this is a good space. You can move around. Things are beautiful. Like, there's plenty of, like, visibility for the people who are watching. And Right. Yeah. I can't imagine what you said the beginning space was like, but this one is great. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> I can Thank imagine, you. like, even needing more space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're teaching these classes, but you also have other local chefs and such come teach classes there, correct? We do. So I have a group of great instructors, and we're always looking for more. But I have a group of great instructors who bring their own style. We have um, parameters for how classes should happen. I have very um, um, clear guidelines on the value I want my customers to receive and mm-hmm. what I want them, the experience I want, want them to walk away with. Um, and what I ask the chefs to bring in is their own cooking style, their own techniques, and it's worked beautifully. So right now the big the big conversation is around carbohydrates and keto. And I have a chef who comes in. Um, I personally follow that diet plan in my life for um, a variety of reasons. Um, when I went to teach it, it wasn't um, a good fit for me because of the approach with desserts on that food plan. I just don't eat those things. Mm -hmm. So it came off very inauthentic when I went to teach it. So I brought in a guy who is a keto chef and does a keto meal delivery business, and he kills that class every time. Um, And same with all all the other chefs. It's all about what what their expertise is and – and it's just turned into this great thing where we have followers for certain certain of our instructors and mm-hmm. folks who want to take that class from that instructor. Well, it gets people in your shop, too, because that's exactly how I got into your shop was because I was doing stuff for Jada Cody. And right. then I was like, what is this store? I'm like, oh, now I'm going to come here to buy all my Christmas gifts. And yeah. It's really a smart business plan to get more sure. people in the door and cross-promoting with other chefs and their audiences and their people and their interests to get them in your shop. Um, I think it's very smart. And and that was when I made that decision about what an instructor, what that was going to look like when I brought them in, everything changed when I made that decision. So it started off with my recipes, my way, you come in and you teach these recipes versus having Jay Decody teach what Jay Decody teaches, his food, his style, his history. When I made that decision to shift away from just hiring bodies to teach my recipes, everything changed. And it it really gives this super vibrant, alive personality to the cooking classroom. It um, y- when you each time you walk in, you kind of never know what you're going to get. Now you're going to get something good. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've made it clear on what the value is the customers need to walk away with. But you also, you know, depending it's on the surprise. instructor. Yeah, 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 super fun. That's amazing. Um, I just remember, too, like, so the cooking class, or I've actually been to your place when it's, like, dinners. Is that right. what it, Yeah, I think that's what I actually had photographed. Maybe I haven't photographed a, a class class, but tell me about those, like, dinners that you host, too. So we were doing pop-up gen- dinners for Jay Decody. Um, prior to him opening his restaurant in White Star, right. he was um, sort of ramping up the excitement behind it by hosting pop-up dinners, and we hosted some of those. I did the same thing for Soji. Okay. Uh, we hosted several of those for Ryan, and um, again, just to kind of ramp up the excitement, I do a pop-up dinner there once a year called Guts and Glory. That's a dinner benefiting the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of Louisiana. My son was diagnosed in 2016, and it's a super difficult diagnosis, and it's also just a difficult conversation because of what that disease entails. And so the pop-up dinner was meant to be this very comfortable um, not uh, mission heavy mm-hmm. um, sort of communication during the dinner, just to promote awareness mm-hmm. of the of the disease and the foundation because it lacks that 
sort of cheerleading cheerleading that you see behind like Komen and uh-huh. um, a lot of those other organizations. So um, a pop-up dinner is in my wheelhouse because of what I do. I have friendships with many chefs in town. So when it's interesting, when I ask them to do something for me, they say yes. And uh, so the pop-up dinner has become, that Guts and Glory pop-up dinner has become a thing. But no, the pop-up dinners are really, really fun. Um, I love having uh, four or five different chefs in the room at once. I love I love frenzy a little bit. I love open concept restaurants where you watch the plating. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just kind of my thing. So those pop-up dinners, you know, just really feed, you know, the things that make me happy. So what things are next for, like, the shop? Like, is there any other special projects? Like, would you be doing, like, online workshops with your cooking? Or, or do you think it's always going to be, like, in-person stuff? No, online workshops are definitely in the in the works. The cooking classroom we're going to build in is going to be set up for um, audiovisual. My yeah. hus- that's my husband's business and background. And so one struggle, it's not a struggle because we've done it and we do it beautifully, but doing that sort of thing in our current space does take, you know, the production van pulls up, we set mm-hmm. up lights, we're hanging things from the rig, you know, and so being able to build all that in and have that in place will help us create that content more smoothly and faster because it'll already be there it'll already be there we'll turn it on and we'll start shooting content as a 51 year old woman i'm not so far behind the curve on on technology and that sort of thing but i am continually baffled at the rate of consumption of content i could write my social media manager chelsea said i could write a shoot write and post a recipe per day on our website and it wouldn't be enough and shooting a recipe that's so much work i mean i know here's with my podcast it's a whole thing for me to get just one up per week right and it's like but people want more (laughs) exactly so the rate of consumption of content blows my mind continually so definitely getting getting pieces and parts in place to make it a little easier for us mm-hmm. to get in a rhythm to get in a rhythm and also put me in the driver's seat a little bit more to have to have my husband send two employees you know and get all that set up and do that for me is a lot and I've got to be able to be more self-sufficient mm-hmm. so we're definitely going to build that in the other thing that's about to happen is when we do the renovation our current cooking classroom is be- going to become a tea bar so oh. we're going to have a barista run tea bar in that play in that space. So, I bought the store six and a half years ago, and there were some. Uh, the previous owner had a line of loose teas in mm-hmm. place, and I didn't know anything about tea. My joke that I tell over and over is all I knew about tea at that time was sweet or unsweet. <laughs> so, where I've come, I've, I'm in constantly in tea certification classes I'm, I'm either in California studying or I'm online studying so I'm earning all of these tea certifications which sounds like oh wow but it's actually hysterical because you could the Chinese say you could study tea every day of your life and you die knowing nothing like it's <laughs> it's, it's a so world, complex it's yeah. so complex but I am trying to do what I can to really wrap my brain around that leaf and what happens in the water at different temperatures of water for different periods of time. You know, I'm just like, we've got to understand this beverage because coffee is the new tea in California, and it is definitely moving. We've also seen tea come and sort of go with the rise and fall of Tivana. Right. But I don't believe tea is gone. No, I, I love believe, tea. I love getting tea from y'all. Right, and I, I just believe I need to learn how to do tea correctly and what makes sense for our customers here in Baton Rouge. So we started, I started breaking down the tea and really understanding it. And we started blending our own teas and having a blast doing it and making a name for ourselves doing it. We have followers of, of a couple of our different blends that, you know, we hear things like, I can't live without Fado mm-hmm. tea. Um, and so I was like, wait a second, like we're we're doing a You're really pioneering this. Yeah, I'm doing a really good job here. So we branded our teas because my thinking was, well, I'm going to have this line of blended teas and I'm going to sell them other places. So we branded the teas Sogo Tea, South of Government. I said that recently. I didn't know that's what that meant. Yeah. And I said this recently and a guy goes, South of Government, just barely. 
Uh, but <laughs> so Sogo Tea is our our line of teas. It's our brand of teas, but it's also going to be a place. So the tea bar will be called Sogo Tea. That's exciting. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I could be wrong. Sorry if someone's listening, but I don't know of a tea bar in Baton Rouge. Is there one? Like so a tea house. There are certainly places that are serving great cups of tea in but like Baton just Rouge. specifically a tea place is there so there are franchise bubble tea okay. spots okay. in Baton Rouge that um, of course I watch all of them very closely it's not my thing it's a little too sweet for me yeah. and the tapioca balls are weird, weird. texture <laughs> um, but lots of folks absolutely love, love it. it yeah so what's interesting about tea in Baton Rouge is the different approaches so you have a sort of a franchise-looking model of a bubble tea place that's like a super sweet um, approach to it. And then you have um, places that serve almost high tea. You know, we have a chocolate place downtown, Strands, that does Mm -hmm. a lovely tea. Uh, We had an antique store that was doing it. Um, And then you have the more drive-through coffee shop model doing you can certainly get a cup of iced hot or iced tea, and you can also get a super sweet like matcha mm-hmm. latte. Um, we will be exactly none of those things. <laughs> so our approach is more about properly steeping you a cup of tea um, and less about making super sweet beverages mm-hmm. that are almost like dessert in a cup. We do want people to understand that there are um, – Tea is really oversimplified in terms of types of tea and how to steep tea and also caffeine levels. A mm-hmm. lot of what you hear about caffeine levels in tea is just so incorrect. And it's, a, it's, a, it's just all really coming from a place of trying to give people a simple answer. So we do want to approach the tea that each of these teas, and I probably have close to 100 in the store, each of these teas have a very specific set of rules around them in terms of time or temperature. Mm, it's so scientific. Specific, but not complicated. I yeah. want to make that clear. We're not tea snobs. We we are all about whatever it takes to get you to that place where you can enjoy that cup of tea, whether that needs milk or sugar. There's a lot of rules around that. You can't put sugar in green teas. You shouldn't put cream in white teas. Um, on this podcast, we say do what you want. Right. <laughs> and that's exactly what we say at Red Stick Spice. So we want you to get to a place where you like that cup of tea and playing around with sweetener and dairy and all of those things. If that's Make it what your own, yeah. Exactly. But we do want to start with properly steeping that cup of tea from mm-hmm. the from the beginning um and that's where and i hate to say complicated again but um there are specific sets of rules around different types of teas depending on what part of the world they came from what we've blended them with that affects things greatly mm-hmm. um and um you know the, all those time and temp rules to get you to the right cup of tea that's also very exciting though it sounds like you're constantly learning and like things that I don't know. Like, that's why I love this podcast. I talk to people, and, like, what's on your radar is, like, something I never would have ever – you know, like, you're going to California to get certified for tea. Like, what? Like, I would have never thought that was even a thing, but it's so interesting to talk to people and hear about what's going on in their world yeah. and their businesses because you're, like, really hitting the ground running doing all these things. Yeah. I think everything shifted for me. So I remember after I bought the store about a year in, it wasn't getting easier and I was spending a lot of time resisting the difficultness of running a business. And I kept comparing myself to other people. And I wasn't even comparing myself to them. I was comparing myself to what I thought of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and why isn't QuickBooks easy for me? Why can't I figure out how to do this business thing? You know, why Why am I cleaning my own store? Why am I, right. you know... And I was just resisting how difficult it was and how much needed to be done and how much you had to do constantly in order to evolve and grow. And when I decided that that was the fun part, like the, the, there's this saying with women leaders that's been going around for a few years where they talk about lean in, mm-hmm. like lean into the difficult parts and I was just like, I am leaning in. <laughs> like I'm 
all the way bent over. Like <laughs> I've been pushed into it. Right. And when I realized, wait, it's, it is about leaning in, but it's also about enjoying the difficult parts and enjoying that I do have to go get T certified. And after I get T certified, then I have to get another one. Enjoying that difficult part of the process that's where leaning in made more sense to me because I was just like, okay, I'm going to lean in. And then when I'm done leaning in, it's going to be so much better on the other side. And then I realized, wait, there is no other side ever. There's no other it's side. It's just a constant process. Yeah. And I was already, the evidence was already there because I am, I am the person, like I do the pop-up dinner and it's like all this stuff around the pop-up dinner. And is and while I'm in the pop-up dinner, I'm planning the next one. Mm -hmm. Like I was already. You forget to enjoy what's already happening. Right. Yeah. But I was already like on to the next project. So I was already doing this. I just wasn't stopping to tell myself, oh, wait, you can actually enjoy. And look at how successful this is. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. I have the same problem. I think it's a it's a creative entrepreneur thing. It's just we are always so hard on ourselves. And so we sometimes forget to like take a look at what we've done and be like, that was good. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're so hard on ourselves. Um, but speaking of that, so you mentioned that you went to LSU for marketing and you worked in, in some media buys and marketing mm-hmm. stuff. Do you think that having all those skills in your tool belt have helped you to run this business? So the thing that I feel has helped me the most is that I was a writer. Mm-hmm. And um, I sat on a panel at Nichols a couple of years ago about they brought back graduates And we sat on a panel talking to the current students about what was important. And, you know, um, I talked a lot. You know, the the younger chefs on the side of me were talking a lot about the workplace and the actual work and the food and, you know, food suppliers. And then I was like, you really need to, like, be able to write a cohesive email and punctuate it and maybe download Grammarly on your computer and they were just like oh the old lady with her advice but for real y'all like writing and the reason why I think I'm an okay writer is because I read I read all Mm -hmm. the time and um, writing has been what I feel has paid forward more than anything from that like first life of mine Um, it's just I can hire people to write content and I just always feel better when I write my own content mm-hmm. um, even if I'm hiring them to clean up my content or to feed me ideas um, doing the bulk of it myself I feel has been really really beneficial for mm-hmm. me and especially when I look at how I'm I, I position myself in the community I feel like I I wrote that I said that and I think it's super important um, for other folks to embrace that as well. I think it's really apparent in your um, presence, like speaking too, just even with this conversation. Like I sometimes wonder why I have a podcast because I like stumble on my words and like and blank out and such. But um, you are such a really good speaker. Like this whole podcast, you've been very articulate about what it is you want to say, I feel like. And I, I can only assume that that has to come from writing as well. I think it comes from writing, from reading, but and, and thank you, by the way. But I am also super open to hearing what other people have to say. Um, it happened recently. I wrote a blog post about my husband, my son has a chronic disease, and um, there's always question about diet, even though diet has nothing to do with his disease. But diet is important. But I wrote specific, specifically about cooking and having a chronic disease and embracing cooking as part of self-care. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like cooking at home and dining together should be up there on the list of yoga and meditation and knitting or whatever it is you do for self-care. And I actually wrote it from a place of watching my son. He recently had a shift in his disease and he's feeling better and he started cooking more. And I watched him embrace cooking and I saw him leaning into it and enjoying it and having fun and texting me pictures of his food, which has never happened. 
So I wrote a blog post about embracing cooking as part of self-care. And I got some feedback from a chronically ill woman who um, reached out on the Facebook feed and gave me her feedback and then reached out an email and referred to me as um, she didn't want to hear any more be positive messages from a healthy and wealthy woman. And at first I was like, holy cow, like she roasted me. But I also have really stopped to think about what she's clearly in pain. Mm -hmm. She's clearly very ill. And maybe I do need to go back and look at how I worded it. I still stand behind my blog post, but I'm definitely open to hearing that Mm -hmm. and thinking perhaps my approach could be shifted. Perhaps, you know, I could listen to what that person has to say and change up how I approach it. Um, So I think in terms of, to go back to your original comment about me being able to articulate what I feel, I think it also, I read a lot, I write a lot, but I also really, really do try to lean in and listen Mm -hmm. to what other folks have to say. I think that's a really positive way of dealing with criticism too, because a lot of people are so quick to like shut it off or be offended or whatever and it doesn't necessarily help and there are I do also agree sometimes with like maybe that person's not your audience and so sometimes just to not listen to the quote-unquote haters or the trolls or the comments but something like that where you're letting it not change you or change how you do things but letting it maybe help you give more perspective exactly or get more perspective to shift it like you said I think that's a really great way to deal with criticism and feedback exactly you know what was interesting about her comment is that it immediately had me go back to that blog post and think about okay if I ever speak to this subject again if I'm ever asked about this again I definitely have that new piece of information to help me either enhance it mm-hmm. or edit it or craft it differently yeah. exactly so that's how I looked at it um, that this was some some fuel to help me better articulate what I'm trying to say here. I still stand behind the essence of what I was saying, mm-hmm. but I certainly recognize that it wasn't heard in that way for that individual. And I I owe it to her to try to wrap my brain around where she was coming from. Sometimes that is the the double-edged sword though of putting yourself out there in the first place like at the end of the day you still had the guts to put yourself out there and explain your point of view so sometimes those are just the downsides of doing that but on that note without getting too negative like what are some other struggles or hurdles that you've had with your business or the whole like experience of the shop or culinary school any of that kind of stuff I think it all goes back to my need to people please well it's two things people pleasing and perfectionism Mm -hmm. have really been tough for me to first of all recognize them and also get away from them so one thing I embraced in the past couple years is this concept of b-minus work and I I believe that good solid work is required everywhere but there are a couple of instances where I was spinning out in perfectionism and nothing was getting done. Mm-hmm. And it, a lot of it had to do with um, the recipe post that we were doing, that I needed it to be perfect, and and nothing was being posted. And so when I embraced B-minus work, we're not talking about Ds or Fs here. We're talking about B-minus. It's still good content. It's still lovely. But it's okay to put that out there because it's being consumed at such a ravenous pace that we had to get to a point where we could just get it out there. So kicking my perfectionism was one. And then people-pleasing in terms – a specific example I would give would be in the cooking classes. So I was – so caught up in so much chatter about health and wellness that I was I had these rules around classes about them 
having certain types of food and we couldn't have certain ingredients. And when I decided that I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nutritionist, I'm a cook, when I decided that and that we can cook, we can teach a cooking class from any list of allowed ingredients, you can give me your list of whole food, 30 foods, you can give me a list of foods allowed for hypertension, type 2 diabetes, keto, it doesn't matter. You give me a list of allowed foods, I can teach a cooking class on that because I look at allowed foods and all I see are meals coming together. And so when we decided that we can teach a class on any list of allowed foods and we weren't there to say whether or not your diet was right or wrong, everything changed. To the point of in, a, in the same day, Jordan, we taught a class at lunchtime called The Truth About Carbs. I mean, so <laughs> ominous, right? That night we taught a biscuits and scones class. And I had a customer say, whose side are you on? Like, you said no carbs at lunch, and now we're making scones. I was like, we're on the food side. Like, we, we're on the side of the folks who want to cook those things. Mm-hmm. So if carbs aren't in your life, then that class is for you. But if you like the occasional scone, that's a killer class. You should come to it. And when, we, when that decision to stop the chatter about what will people think of me if I teach a class about bar food, we teach a class on bar food. We make nachos and sloppy joes and, you know, yeah. eat truffle popcorn. Um, when I decided that I wasn't going to worry about any judgment on the type of food we teach, that I didn't have to be the wellness cooking classes, whatever that means, mm-hmm. everything changed. When that decision was put in place. That's a really great um thing to say and I feel like I'm kind of going through something similar with this podcast which is still fairly new but I get caught up when I'm interviewing people because I'm like I don't want to talk about anything too controversial I don't want to bring anything up I don't want to talk about that because what will someone say I'm so afraid someone else is going to give me that hater feedback about like something I said and once you make the decision to just be like I like you said I'm not a doctor I'm not a nutritionist well I'm not like you know, the smartest person in the world. I'm just a girl with a microphone talking right. about photography you're half not the time. A, you're not a social or political pundit. <laughs> right. So You are and that's a girl not, with a podcast. Yeah, and that's not my position. And not that anything has really gotten that far, but I'm always so afraid because there's this cancel culture and everyone's like, you said that, you tweeted that, like, you're done, like, we don't support you. Mm-hmm. And that's a different conversation than, like, you with the cooking stuff, but it's kind of the same principle where it's like, I'm so, you're so afraid to do something that you just don't do it at all, or you're not putting your best self into it because you're so, you're trying to navigate it so delicately. And at the end of the day, if you make the decision to just be like, this is me, right? <laughs> this is what I do, or this is what we offer, um, then it's a lot easier to own it, I think. There is peace in a decision. It can be a little one or a big one. But mm-hmm. when I started deciding things and that that was it and this is my position and this is who I am, all that chatter stops. The weight comes off your shoulder. It really does. And it's just like, oh, that's our decision. Next. And we just move on. And when I figure, Jordan, I'm 51 years old and I'm just figuring this stuff out. When I figured that out, that it's all about deciding, it was just like, Oh, this is what it's all about. That's how this works. Well, I'm glad yeah. you're saying this because now I can try to put that into effect. Yeah. Now and maybe live it for the rest of my life. <laughs> so my daughter is 19. My oldest is 32. My daughter, youngest is 19. My son is 21. And I'll just text things like this to them because I just want Wisdom. them. Yeah. And I, I, I could surely call them, but... Uh, I text it to them, and, you know, Emma will be like, Mom, what are you doing? She's <laughs> like, I was like, I just need you, I need you to read this and know that this, the discomfort you're in right now, that's the currency to your dreams, you know, and that deciding can be, like, so, so liberating. And she's just like, what are you texting us? You need to make one of those, like, flip calendars with, like, a different yes. quote every day. <laughs> Or you just need to do your own podcast or something because you yeah. have lots of wisdom, it seems. Yeah. Um, no, well, that's perfect. And we're kind of almost to an hour, which is pretty perfect, actually. This was so fun. Yeah. yeah. So where can everyone find you and your business? And tell me where your stores are in case people listening don't know where to go. Absolutely. So we're in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We're in Mid-City at Jefferson near Government Street, coolest neighborhood in town. And we have a small location downtown at uh, 5th and Main Street, which is open 
uh, middle of the 10 to 2 weekdays, and then with the farmers, it's adjacent to the farmer's market. Okay. Um, so the farmers are there from 8 to 12 on Saturdays. Really, really cool spot. Um, it's a little miniature version of our mid-city store. And then we are open 24-7, 365 online at redstickspice.com. Um, you can grab spices, teas, olive oils, and balsamics there. And the cool, other cool thing to consider is a subscription. So we do various subscriptions monthly and quarterly. Spices and flavors show up on your doorstep with recipes in the box. So you are the Blue Apron. I am the Blue <laughs> Apron of spices. Um, we call ourselves the Stitch Fix of spices. I love it. Yeah. And so a box of nothing but surprises and deliciousness each month or each quarter. So I would love to hear from everyone, whether it's in the shop or online, and they can always shoot me an email. And um, this has been great fun. Yes, same to you. And shout out to Digital Effects for letting us record in their theater. Um, by the time this comes out, hopefully it will be solved, but I'm having some pest control issues at my house. You have unwanted guests. <laughs> unwanted guests that are eating my apples. So thank nope. you for letting us record here. Digital Effects, I will link you in the show notes as well. Um, but thanks so much for coming on. This was fun. Thank you. Hey, y'all. Just popping in to give a big thanks to you for listening to this episode of Do What You Want Radio. As always, if you are enjoying what you're listening to, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and follow if you're on Spotify. Show notes for this episode and more can be found at dowhatyouwantradio.com. I am super active on my Instagram account at Jordan Heffler if you're interested in keeping up with me there. And I also have a weekly email newsletter that you can subscribe to at jordanheffler.com slash subscribe. Every Thursday, I send out a tip of the week along with promotional information about my Do What You Want workshop series, online e-courses that help you learn to create authentically branded content that leverage growth on your social media platforms all by yourself. I also have Lightroom presets, merchandise, and just general information about my life and photography business in these email newsletters. Y'all are so awesome for listening. Thank you so much. And until next time, keep doing what you want. (laughs) Did that sound too fake?